Welcome to the 1% Wiser podcast. Today I am speaking with Shabana Bazij Razik. Shabana is an educator, humanitarian, and women's rights champion from Afghanistan. She's the founder of the School of Leadership Afghanistan, the first all girls boarding school in the country. In this amazing conversation, we talk about the journey she's been on from her childhood, where she had to take enormous risks to sneak to school every day but it was still illegal for girls to receive an education in the country. To her work today advancing girls' education across Afghanistan. Shabana's story is truly humbling and it was wonderful to talk with her. So let's get started. Shabana, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So Shabana, you have an absolutely amazing story. I'd love to start back kind of at the beginning and why are you so interested in education for girls? Yeah, that's a great question. I I was born and raised in Kabul, Afghanistan. So a lot of my childhood experience, in a way, influences who, what I do today. When I was growing up, there was a period of time that the Taliban regime were in control from 1996 to 2001. And that was right about time when I was supposed to start my own schooling in Afghanistan. But unfortunately, the regime made it illegal for girls to go to school. Women were not allowed to work outside the home. And as a result, I didn't have the option of going to school. Girls like me couldn't go to school. And I think in a way, even worse, girls who had been going to school prior to the Taliban regime could no longer attend school. I was extremely uh, fortunate and lucky um, to be born in a family um, where my parents uh, really valued and continue to value education above and beyond anything. So they they made sure that we received uh, an education even growing up in you know under a regime that criminalized girls education. My parents insisted that both my brothers and my sisters and I um, receive an education. And that was, we basically had no other option. In a way that made us very lucky because for a lot of parents at that time, they had to go with, with the status quo at that time, which was girls couldn't go to school. But I think my parents' background had a lot to do with their in, you know, insistence to educators. My father was the first person in his family to receive an education. And my mother, along with her sisters, were the first women in her family to get educated. In fact, when my mother, when my grandfather from my mother's side decided to educate my mom and her sisters, he was disowned by his father for quite a few years. And I think that also influenced the way my mom looks at education and the value of education, especially for, for women and girls. So when my parents, who come from two different parts of Afghanistan, you know, got married and found themselves living under the Taliban regime with four daughters, they couldn't think about the possibility of raising their own daughters without an education. For them, it was not an option. For my mother, it was undoing years of progress that she had to uh, work so hard uh, for. And so they decided to send me and my sisters to secret schools. And, you know, uh, what I mean by secret schools is that we would go to somebody's living room, somebody's house, and sit in their living room, uh, literally, you know, no furniture on the room, just a uh, carpet or a rug laid out. Uh, and then we would all sit there, you know, the room was typically quite packed. And we would study. Sometimes, depending on the various different types of secret schools that there were, they either pretended to be teaching girls religious subjects only, and for girls under the age of 10, 
Taliban didn't have such hard rules. You know, if they were going to somebody's house to study, let's say, the Quran, they were okay with it. But, you know, under that guise, we were actually also studying school subjects. So it made sense for a lot of girls to be packed in a room, you know, making that noise in the neighborhood because we all always had a Quran with us as well. Anyways, I have an older sister who at that time was old enough where she was required by the Taliban to wear a burqa when, whenever she went outside. And a woman going outside was always also required to be accompanied by a male family member. And so my uh, you know, father, who was a general in the army and was hiding from the Taliban, couldn't go with her. My brother was going to school every day, so he couldn't uh, accompany my sister. So the only way was my parents decided to dress me up as a boy and send me with her to that secret school. And this was the only way that both of us received an education. And so, honestly, I grew up thinking my parents were so cruel and unkind, uh, especially when my sister and I had close calls. We, we worried that, you know, what if, what if we get caught? What, what are, you know, uh, there was no joking about that. I mean, if you got caught breaking Taliban rule, you got killed. The punishment was always quite severe. And with all the public executions that was uh, happening at that time, they, they were reinforcements of that you don't, you don't mess around with, with Taliban. So we would come home at times and really beg our parents to stop sending us to these secret schools. What was the point, we would ask. Like, it's not like we would graduate high school and there would be, you know, public acknowledgement of our education or that we would go to university or be able to get a job. So why, why was it worth risking our lives? And at that time, my parents would say all sorts of great things to convince us uh, that it really was uh, important. And I remember at that time, it didn't mean anything until much later in my lifetime. And they would always say things like, you know, education is the most Im important investment in your life. It's the one thing that no one can take away from you. You could lose your, your home to a natural disaster, or you could be forced to leave it during a war and become a refugee. So anything you possess materially can be taken away from you. But there's one thing that no one can take away from you is your education, your ability to think for yourself. And that's so powerful. Like I said, it didn't mean anything at that time. All I wanted was to not be scared and be safe in a way. And then 9-11 happened. Within a couple of months, the Taliban regime was toppled. and Soon after that, an interim government was formed in Afghanistan. And the, right before the start of academic year, which typically in Kabul starts the second or third day of spring. So in March 2002, it was the beginning of the academic year. And I forget whether it was January or February, the interim government made an announcement and said girls could go to the nearest public school and essentially uh, take a placement test into whatever grade they felt comfortable getting into. And this was because the, government, the new government had no record whatsoever for any female students. Any, any prior record, mind you, they were not obviously in hard copies and not in digital form, that was stored in these public schools or Ministry of Education they were burned by the Taliban. So the, go the government had no option but to ask for this, kind of announce for this placement test. Anyways, I went to public school and took a placement test for seventh grade, so entering seventh grade, right about when kids are 11 or 12. And the day the results were announced, I think that was the day when I finally realized what my parents had done where the school decided that because there were thousands of girls that poured into the schools 
I think in, in the public school that I attended, there was more than 9,000 girls. And in the seventh grade, there were a lot of students for a couple of reasons. But the school decided that girls who were academically strong, that they would be selected as uh, class representatives so that they could help their classmates, especially when the teacher didn't show up to teach or as they were trying to address the shortage of uh, teachers at that time. So they announced my name as a class representative and asked me to come to the front of the line so that all of my classmates could be introduced to me. And as I made my way through the crowd and I told the teacher that I was who I was, she looked at me and, and she was um, uh, shocked. And then and she said, oh, no, I didn't understand why she said that. The minute I stood next to her facing my classmates, um, I had the exact same feeling. I realized that the majority of my classmates were at least six years older than I was. These were girls who returned to school where, in the grade where they had left off right, right before the Taliban regime. And thanks to the risks that my parents took on daily basis to send us to secret schools, I was um, years ahead of my classmates and ahead of my peers. For the first time, I realized what my parents had been risking all of our lives for. And it was such a profound moment. I was, I had just turned 12 and I was about to start the seventh grade and I was standing there and I felt so, so lucky and I felt so ashamed. Lucky because I could, you know, no one had to tell me I could tell. I was so ahead of my peers and I felt ashamed because I had given my parents such a hard time. And so I think that moment and that realization, in a way, led to my believing so strongly in the power of education, especially for women and girls. I was convinced then, and I continue to be convinced that for a lot of women who live in, in patriarchal structures or continue to live in those kinds of structures where, you know, women are still trying to enter much of the public sphere. That education is their ticket um, to freedom and independence. I was uh, told that growing up by my mother. I experienced it and I still believe it. Incredible story. I wonder, I'm curious about uh, your grandfather. You mentioned that he was the person who took the decision to educate your mother and she was the first person in your family to, to receive an education i wonder have you ever spoken to him about that because i as you mentioned it's a, a huge decision he was he lost his family it may have put him in some danger i imagine and i wonder what his original motivation was if, if you've ever spoken to him about that at all yeah actually i i, I did i have spoken with him recently about this and he told me he he told me about how he was kicked out of the house. He told me about how his father literally threw all of his belongings out of the window. He, they lived on the second story and and he said, "I had my own pride. I took all my stuff and took my daughter's, and I never came back <laughs> and and he I asked him, so why, why was it so important for him? And he, he, I think, you know, I'm sure he has thought about it all of his life, you know, being, he was a general in the army and then he was a very well-traveled guy. And he, his answer was, you know, something, I, I was expecting something, you know, quite, quite philosophical and like, oh, he's going to give me this grand answer that is going to, and he gave me a very simple answer, which was in a way even stronger and more profound. And he said, why not? He said, why, why shouldn't um, women have the opportunity to get ed educated? And he said, you know, it's, it says it in the Quran that women and men uh, should, should receive an education. And so I think the simplicity of his answer, the fact that he had realized it was to me quite beautiful and in and of itself quite strong. 
Yeah, he sounds like a, an amazing man, and obviously changed the course of your family. <laughs> yeah, quite. He's 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 very proud of all of our education. I I remember when I graduated college and was back in Afghanistan. I he came to visit us, and and I think my father also knew that my grandfather would really enjoy this. He was about to leave our house and go home in a taxi and. Our car was parked. My brothers were not home. And my dad said, no, no, you know, Shabana will take you home. No, he said, no, we will, you know, you will, you will go home in our car. And, and he looked around. And he's like, the boys are not home. And my father chuckled. And I think he probably purposefully kind of <laughs> said it the way he said it. And he said, no, Shabana will, will take you home. And he he just stood there initially a little uh, shocked and then when he realized he he couldn't stop smiling he, you know he is just he i mean he was a mix of just being so happy and so proud so he sat in the uh, front seat and i drove him home and he looked at me and he said this is by far the proudest moment um, in my life you know so many people can't even dream of being driven by their you know granddaughter and here here you are driving me he's like i he's like i can i can rest in peace now <laughs> and so he was he was quite proud that's amazing i want to shift gears slightly and ask about your time you later went to school in the us and also in the uk i'd love to hear what you thought about your education in in the us and uk and what uh, surprised you the most about your time there I just told you, you know, your initial question was what led to my commitment to to be working in, in the education sector. And I gave you my example from my childhood, which which plays a significant role. But I think another one is my very first trip outside of Afghanistan was when I was 15. And I was chosen as a high school exchange student to study in the U.S. for a year. And when I, when I arrived in the U.S., and this was back in 2005, for me to see and, and experience what it meant for girls to feel that it was completely normal, it was absolute, there was absolutely no question whatsoever that they would receive an education, it was so beautiful. I had never seen anything like it. You know, I, I kept looking around wondering that there will be this conservative grandfather from, you know, a different generation or this father or this brother or uncle who would be, you know, behind these girls' backs would be saying, no, 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 they shouldn't be going to school. And I, could, I couldn't find that. And it was so fascinating for me at a young age. You know, for me... A lot of in 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 I've noticed that in you know a lot of Western parents and teachers complain how their children take their education for granted, which includes their daughters too. But I found it so beautiful that girls could take their education for for granted, and I knew even at that young age that when girls in Afghanistan get to that point where they feel where they will question or find it strange when someone questions their ability to receive an education then we will have really truly achieved the kind of development in our society that could not be undone so i knew even then and i think i remember telling myself this is what i want for for girls in Afghanistan. And so that was one moment. Another one, when I first came to the U.S., my host family said, this was, I think, sometime in August. They told me that a specific date in September, something like probably was September 23rd, that they we were all going to uh, go on a road trip from where they lived to a different place. And they told me about the plan, how they were going to visit some family members and go to this amusement park. 
so they told me all this plan, but there was very, uh, they were very specific about when exactly this was going to happen. And I was so fascinated. The first question I asked them was, how do you know? And they said, what do you mean? And I said, how do you know that on that particular day, you're going to be able to make this trip? And he said, well, we, because we've planned it. And I, so at that time, my English was not, you know, that strong. And I was beginning to sound like I was <laughs> wishing something horrible to happen to them. But what I was trying to understand was like, how do they know that nothing is going to come up or happen that they are so sure that they can do or uh, make this trip. So I, I was, instead I said, I kind of uh, stopped asking and I said, you know, I'll wait until this day and they're not going to be able to travel. And I'm going to tell them, aha, see, I told you, <laughs> you can't plan this one this far in advance. But sure enough, just like they had mentioned on that specific day, just like they mentioned that earlier than usual, we all woke up packed the car and we started this road trip and I was so amazed and I guess as I reflect back on on that moment I came from 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 a war-torn country you know Afghanistan is now in four decades of war where we can't take the next day I mean forget about the next day the next hour for granted and here my host family was able to plan things or in, in a sense, when my host brother was talking about his daughters going to a particular elementary school or a middle school and then high school, you know, kind of planning well into the future. This was quite amazing to me, the ability for people to, to, to take future for granted and plan for it. You know, I guess in international development, especially when it comes to Afghanistan, this is the place where a lot of missed opportunities, you know, happen, basically. And so I guess those are a couple of really interesting <laughs> observations for me early on. But I guess later on, just being able to go back and forth between these two very different worlds. And in a way, be comfortable in both of these very different worlds or try to navigate both of these worlds. I've always been both inspired. I've continued to have this urge of wanting to do more because of it. How did you come then to start Sola? And maybe you could also say a little bit about what Sola is. Yes. So when I started my undergraduate experience in the U.S., and this was in 2007, I think it was UNDP or one, the UN in general published a report uh, that said only 6% of women in Afghanistan have a bachelor's degree or undergraduate degree. And I was about to start my own experience. And then on top of it, the president of our college mentioned during orientation, the, you know, beginning of the our first year experience, that we were the you know two three percent lucky Americans who can attend this kind of uh, university or receive this kind of education, referring to the liberal arts. And this was obviously directed to the American students, but then I started to wonder what does that even mean for me if such a small percentage of Americans are so lucky to be able to have access to this kind of education. What does this mean for me coming from Afghanistan? And I was really overwhelmed by the power of this statistic and how privileged access to this kind of education sounded. You know, it, it in a sense, again, I, I felt both very, very guilty and very, very lucky and privileged and was very unsettled by that experience and started to ask myself all sorts of questions, you know, 
why me? What I have this, what have I done to deserve this opportunity? What now? What next? Can I even do anything? How can I maximize this opportunity? Not just for myself, but on behalf of millions of people in Afghanistan that I'm kind of granted this opportunity. And they were all quite present in my mind. And uh, in a way to, to live with myself and the opportunities that I had, I started Sola. Actually, I co-founded Sola with an American uh, who was living in Afghanistan at that time. And Sola, in, in one of uh, the languages in Afghanistan, in Pashto language, it means peace. But it's also an acronym for School of Leadership Afghanistan. When we founded Sola in 2008, the idea was that we would help facilitate opportunities for young Afghan students to come to the United States and study, both at a high school level and then college and universities, which is something we did for a few years. And then in 2011, when I graduated and went back to Afghanistan, and this was also the year that the United States announced a timeline for troop, U.S. troops would withdrawal, things, things changed. It had an impact on the you know, political dynamics in Afghanistan and in the region. And as a result, a lot of Afghan students were quite fearful for, 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 for their future in, in Afghanistan. So a lot of people were not returning back to Afghanistan. And my co-founder and I had a very meaningful heart-to-heart conversation about, about Sola. And I know as an American, it meant a great deal for him that our students came to the U.S. and um, were living examples of the Muslim world for Americans. And that was very meaningful to him. It was to me as well, but for him, it was one of the main uh, attractions in the program. And so this, I propose that we turn our scholarship program into a boarding school in Afghanistan with this idea that instead of sending Afghan students to access quality education outside of Afghanistan, why not bring quality education to them, to Afghanistan? So one way that we could address this brain drain, that we didn't want to be a vehicle for brain drain. He was extremely supportive. He ultimately, and he always preached, that the solutions to Afghanistan's problem will ultimately have to come from Afghans, and especially educated Afghans, and cannot be imposed from the outside. He didn't just say that, but he quite lived it. He took a role within our board and kind of let me run with this idea and was very, very supportive. And we decided to, when we decided to turn Sola into a boarding school, this was back in 2012, it took us four years to really turn that into a reality. And there were quite a few reasons. One one was we were still trying to figure out what kind of a school we were trying to be. When we were bringing students in high school years, so the last four years before they can graduate high school, we realized that it was already too late for students from provinces to to be able to really study well. And so we were looking at our model, and if our focus is really to be able to bring students from all corners of Afghanistan and give them a very good education, are we, in a way, already setting them for failure at a high school level? So we took a year to really understand and understand what is it that we were trying to uh, solve in, in Afghanistan, what kind of problem. And we came to the conclusion that the best time to start the solo experience was in sixth grade. This is when girls are 10, 11, or 12 years old. 
for several reasons. One, at this age, girls in Afghanistan are still seen as girls and not women. So it makes it easier to convince their families to let them board in order to receive a good education. Developmentally, it's an exciting time to work with young minds. And finally, it gave us time to address any kind of academic gaps that these girls would have before they reach high school so that we could really then educate them at an international standard. In the process of setting up uh, the school, we realized that we were setting up my countries first and unfortunately still only all-girls boarding school. And it's it's something I'm honestly not quite proud of. It makes me angry whenever I, I say that because after all these years of <laughs> you know, aid money poured into the country, we really still haven't done something meaningful and significant for girls. Yeah, we have we have great achievements to show in numbers, but we really dig deep into those numbers. And some of it is it's on the surface, it's quite fragile, and it's really not the kind of work that could really sustain itself in the long run. So Sola became a boarding school, a true boarding school in 2016. We admitted our first cohort. Those girls, uh, are they have just started their 11th grade. Uh, so next year, they will be the very first class that will graduate Sola High School. Amazing. <laughs> I think incredible. You've spoken before about how important it is for the girls to be able to serve their country and to be responsible citizens. Could you talk a little bit about how you think about the education you give the girls and, and what you mean by that and how you try to teach that at, at, at Sola? That's actually a great question. And So I grew up in a household where... For me, education and service to country went hand in hand. They were, no, not, they were not two separate things. And in, just, in my mind, in my world, in my imagination, they were the same. And it may have a lot to do with the fact that one of my parents was in the military and the other is an educator. And it just naturally was the conversation in our household was that education was important in order to serve people. The first time I realized about the social capital of the kind of education you receive, whether you go to a place like Oxford or another lesser-known university, the you know the kind of the gain in social capital that you have as a result of it, I I I, I was exposed to all of this. In the West, like once I went to the U.S. and the kind of profession people chose, this was all quite fascinating to me. You know, it really, really interesting for me. And so I always grew up with this understanding that your education needs to have the kind of purpose that it really comes from you. You know, what does this education mean? And ultimately, that, that, that kind of meaning you also seek in the, in the service of others, uh, which sounds quite idealistic <laughs> in a way. Even for, you know, for, for me to be exposed to this in Afghanistan, it sounds quite idealistic. But ultimately, if you think about it, Afghanistan has experienced 40 years of war. And I am not as old as the war in Afghanistan. <laughs> I'm younger than the war in Afghanistan. For Afghanistan to truly turn around as a country, for us to really turn our country around, it is going to take a long time. It is going to take longer than 40 years. And it's ultimately going to be the responsibility of educated Afghans. 
And so if the education of this young generation of Afghans don't have a purpose behind it, we're not going to be able to achieve meaningful, sustained progress that we want, especially not in our lifetime. So we look at every single student at SOLA as a, a future leader of Afghanistan. I no longer say future leader of Afghanistan. I look at them as leaders of Afghanistan. And this may sound, you know, a little cheesy or whatever you may call it, but it's honestly not. And I will tell you why. The girls who attend SOLA, they are extremely special, not because they are my students, but because these are the girls who fight so hard for their opportunities. Their families are the type of families who take unbelievable risk to themselves to be able to educate their daughters the way they educate them. I no longer call them future leaders because when these girls go home on long holidays, they go home and automatically become tutors for other girls in their extended family, in their neighborhood. And honestly, several girls who actually go to the public school, to the government school in their local areas, and sign up to be volunteer teachers. And this happens without us telling them. And these are young girls. I can tell you stories about young girls who have dedicated their long holiday, the two and a half months that they are off, to teaching their own mothers how to read and write. Because at this young age, they realize and they know that their mother has a wish that, you know, she wishes she could read a sign. But because she grew up in war, she was never able to go to school. And as a result, the mother has prioritized her education and her sister's education. And she's always emphasized that these girls receive an education. And she doesn't want her mother to uh, die without realizing her wish. And for young girls to be able to already understand the purpose of their education and do something about it, it's, it's profound. They are leaders in their communities. They already are. And the more time they get to be able to stay in school and get better educated, I only, you know, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time before, you know, we sit back, all of us, and watch them in action. And I genuinely believe that that's going to happen. When we started our sixth grade class, we purposefully had very few students. I could have easily admitted students in several grades, but I admitted girls in just sixth grade. And we gradually increased the number of students. Today, we have 102 students representing 28 of the 34 provinces in Afghanistan. And that's a remarkable achievement in a place like Afghanistan today. And it's just a matter of time before we can, you know, build a campus that we're trying to do at the moment and then increase the number of our students to over 200 students coming from all 34 provinces. So this is the kind of progress I'm talking about because this is the kind of pro progress that has such deep roots in um, every single girl who then is responsible for the generation coming after her. And that's how progress happens, one highly educated girl at a time in a place like Afghanistan. Absolutely. One thing I'm curious about is your perspective on boys' education. I imagine that the only way, really, that, that it could become truly safe for girls to go to school in Afghanistan is if new generations of boys come up believing that that is totally normal and important for their daughters to go to school rather than you know this Taliban desire which is obviously to ban it again I'm curious what what your perspective is on that on the normalization of, of girls and boys going to school and if you do any work on on boys education or plan to in in the future you know that's a great question one that I get asked all the time and let me tell you this the young generation of Afghan boys already understand 
and appreciate girls' education and, and women's place and role and society. They, they just haven't had the opportunity. There are so many young Afghan boys who fight for the opportunity to have an educated wife because there is a shortage of educated women in Afghanistan. And, 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 be, and, and it's not because they just want to have an educated wife, they, because they understand and appreciate and value education for women and for women in their own families. They understand and appreciate um, and understand that if, if, if their wife is not educated, uh, the prospect for their children is not that great. And they understand it well before they become a father. So that is good news. In terms of opportunities, it was easier for me to focus on girls because especially the way SOLA works is that we focus on girls from remote parts of Afghanistan. The school is located in Kabul, but we try to bring girls from parts of Afghanistan where there is insecurity or girls may not be able to continue with their education beyond a certain grade. And I know that culturally, if boys from those areas want to continue with their education and it may not be available for them in their area, they can pack up and come to a city and live on their own or with a family friend and it's socially acceptable for them to do that. But if a girl have that similar desire to continue with her education and it's not available in her local community, the only way that she can achieve her dream is for her family to pack up and move to a city, which they may not have the financial ability to do. So that's why it was easier for me to prioritize girls' education over boys. But I absolutely believe that, you know, boys and girls should receive an education. And I agree that, honestly, for women to be able to, in a way, have, a, have an easier time in their own society is for men to be enlightened and and educated and believe in their in, in women's education and, and opportunities. The good news is, and something that a lot of people in the West find quite surprising, is that less than three, four percent of people in Afghanistan believe in radical ideology that Taliban stand for. So when and if the opportunities provided, people People will take it. You know, the fathers and brothers of my students are a great example. I, I have a student whose brother dropped out of school to earn uh, income and support his family in order for the younger sister, who's our student, get an education. Why? Because he, at that young age, made this, in his own mind, a logical decision that his sister had better potential to receive an education than he did. It was his own decision. So he dropped out to earn an income and instead focused on her. You've been described by National Geographic as the fearless educator. And I imagine that your really important work is it can be something that encourages the, the wrath of the, of the Taliban and can, can of course... Uh, cause some personal danger to yourself. I wonder how you cope with that threat that you, you personally face trying to do your vital work and to reach people in, in these hard-to-reach places. How do you cope with that yourself? Well, I think it, it, is quite a, it is quite kind of National Geographic to describe me as that, and I always remind people that probably I'm, I'm fearless not by choice but by necessity, <laughs> you know, the answer is simple. When I was growing up and education was illegal, there were brave, brave families and women who made that decision, that active decision to put their lives on the line to educate a few hundred girls. And thanks to their bravery, I'm speaking with you right now. So if nothing else, educated women like myself of this generation owe it to those brave women to continue the fight. We have no option. Believe me, 
It would have been so beautiful if I could escape it. I just can't, even if I try. And I think it's one of those realities of our generation of Afghans that we have to have to cope with and deal with and 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 try to change. There's nothing heroic or special in this. There are far more amazing stories from Afghanistan of people who do much amazing work than I do that you will never hear about. But it is the reality that we have and we have to figure out a way out. Yeah, I'm I'm sure. Even so, I I think your story, uh, I at least find it very inspiring and I'm sure many others will as well. And uh, I can say that I'm sure that if more girls come out of your school to be as inspiring as you are, then Afghanistan will face a, a very bright future. So we're coming to the end of our time, Shavana, but I'm just curious, before we wrap up, are there any parting thoughts you might like to share? It could be advice, a book you would recommend to people, or, or anything you'd like to share about Solo that, that people should know about. It's something I always uh, like to do, and I think it's in a way necessary that we do this. And honestly, Jamie, we might even want to have a whole new conversation just about what I'm about to say in a way if we and I actually I'm quite serious it's it's such an important um, issue if we zoom out of Afghanistan we've been quite zoomed in to Afghanistan into this story of a school and girls education but if we zoom out of Afghanistan and look at the bigger picture globally prior to the pandemic alone there were 130 million plus girls globally who were out of school, you know? And with the pandemic, credible international organizations such as the Malala Fund came out to say that between 10 to 20 million girls are at risk of never returning to school because of the pandemic. So the pandemic in a way has already uh, further amplified this issue, this problem. And it is something that should really concern all of us. It really should. This is something I worry about every day, not just the girls in Afghanistan, but globally. And here is why. Years of research and studies show, and there's a lot of credible evidence um, that you can look up, that If we want to eradicate global poverty, we need to prioritize and invest in girls' education. Why? Because an educated woman in a developing country tends to invest more than 90% of her income back into the family, have fewer and healthier children. And you and I know very well that when, when kids grow up, especially in their early childhood, with better nutrition and education, their prospects of coming out of poverty is much better. So this happens with educated mothers. A group of scientists, economists, and environmentalists came together to rank the top 80 most effective ways to reverse global warming. And they ranked investment in girls' education as number six, number six most effective solution ahead of solar rooftops or electric cars. So it just makes sense. It makes economic sense to prioritize and invest in girls' education globally. And, and we should understand that we are, we're not doing it because we need to do these girls globally a favor to get them to schools. We need them desperately to save the world, and I mean that quite literally. So this is really my, my, my parting thoughts, and I really hope that the listeners can take this to heart and, and take a bit of time to do a bit of research on this. Look it up and see what they can do. It's so important that we prioritize and invest in girls' education globally. 
Absolutely. And it's such enormous untapped potential and all these people who are unable exactly. to, to receive a, a quality education. I wonder if exactly. somebody listening wanted to, to contribute or to learn more, as you suggest, is there any resources or charities you could recommend that people look at if they want to try and support this issue? Absolutely. I think for one, there, there, are, there are many amazing organizations around the world. I mean, places like Malala Fund already have great resources out there. You could, you could look up our website. It's sola, S-O-L-A-Afghanistan.org. And we, we, I, I maintain a blog post on, on our website talking about these issues as well. But I think ultimately so important to to understand this issue on a global scale. There are UN resources as well to understand this better, and and to engage elected officials in your in your home countries. Ask them these questions: What are you doing um, to address this issue on a on a on a global scale? If if there is anything they can do, because if if governments don't prioritize this issue. If they don't collaborate on a global scale, we can't really address this issue. But in the meantime, look up charities that uh, you believe in and support, either locally or in a country of your choice. It's very important that we engage. You know, the fact that we are the, if you consider yourself the fortunate person who is able to access your most basic human right, which is, you know, get education. I think it becomes, in a way, a moral responsibility for us to make sure that this is something everyone around the world enjoys. So I, I hope everyone can pay attention to this issue. Well, Shabana, we'll link to all those places you mentioned in the show notes. And, and just to say again that you're such an inspiration to me, and I know you are to many others, and hopefully to, to many young, young girls and women around the world. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and to speak with me. And please keep up your amazing work and keep safe. Thank you so much for, for the invitation. I'm really honored and take care. Thanks, Shabana. Well, that's it for this episode of 1% Wiser. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you did, please consider taking 30 seconds to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. And this helps support the show. Otherwise, thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.